Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway or new on Backstage Babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by our guest, Stephen Hannon. Stephen is a Tony nominee for his role of Gus the Theater Cat in Cats. He's also appeared in Pirates of Penzance at the Delacorte and Oliver and Peter Pan on Broadway. He is the co-author and star of Jolson and Company and has appeared many times in the York's Musicals in Mufti series. Stephen, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. So let's start at the beginning. How did you fall in love with theater and what were some of your first shows? Oh boy. <laughs> well, um, when I was in, when I was when I was 10 years old, I grew up in Washington, DC. And that was before they built <clears throat> the, the Kennedy Center. So there was really one main theater, the National Theater, which is still there and is still used, I believe, but it was that's where all of the touring shows came either from Broadway when they went out on the road with the national company or for pre-Broadway tryouts. And when I was 10 years old, somebody gave me, um, I can't even remember who, but uh, I think it was, it might've been my high school, my junior high drama teacher, um, a, a subscription to the, the theater guild, which presented a season of plays and musicals that all played throughout the year at, at the National Theater. Um, so I, went with, I, I can't remember the order that they came in, but for example, one of the things that I saw was Little Abner tried out, came open in Washington before Broadway. So I saw the tryout of Little Abner. I saw the thing I remember really the most because she was such a great star and so special was um, Judy Holiday went in the national company of Bells Are Ringing or at least they came to Washington. And so that was probably the first musical that I ever saw. And uh, she was just so terrific. But I, you know, there's, I also got started by, by the age of seven, I had been introduced to Gilbert and Sullivan. And I don't know how much you know about them these days, because it's not nearly as, as accessible, I think, to, to kids your age as it used to be. When I was, this is back in the 50s, 1950s, um, it was, there was a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan around. Every little town had, Washington, D.C. had its own Gilbert and Sullivan company, a kind of community theater that did stuff. And I, so I fell in love with, with, um, with the writing, with the lyrics of Gilbert, W.S. Gilbert and things like the Mikado. And then, of course, it was, there wasn't such a funny coincidence that years later, the first Broadway show I ever did was Pirates of Penzance. And I had, you know, I think the first album, the first of album of LPs that I ever had as a child was, was also was the Doily Cart Company from London doing the Pirates of Penzance. So I knew that show really well. You know, I think when I was, when I was uh, younger than you, I had memorized the Major General song. And, um, but I didn't actually perform theater until much later, like maybe uh, by 
maybe ninth or tenth grade, I was first in, co in school shows, and I did have a natural flair for performing. So uh, that's how it started. So, who were some of your earliest acting inspirations? Well, <laughs> I think it was a little earlier than 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 I even referred to was. Um, I, I went to I Parvis in a Hebrew school play for Purim, uh, for the, the Jewish holiday of Purim, that's a, a usually a month before Passover. And Purim is a, is a very festive holiday. It's, it's not, it's like people dress up in costumes and, lot, and plays get put on um, that all tell the story of Esther and, and Mordecai and the bad guy Haman in the book of Esther from the Bible. And, and that was a tradition in, I guess, Jewish culture for thousands of years to do Purim plays. And so the first play I ever was in was, uh, was uh, in, from Hebrew school, it was a, a short Purim play. And um, the principal of the school who, you know, on the day of the performance, uh, you know, gave me one piece of advice that I maybe listened to too closely for the rest of my career. But I vividly remember him saying to me, ham it up good. Um, so whatever that meant, I guess I did it and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> With maybe an introduction of some kind of nuance. But uh, on some level, there was something about ham it up good that, that I thought, well, that sounds like fun. Sure, why not? So how did you study theater in high school and college? Well, I did a lot of it. Um, I didn't really study it. Um, I, and and at, at, uh, on college level, I actually, I took as many plays. At, there was no drama major when I went to school, but I did as many, um, um, as many subjects that had uh, classes and courses on plays. So I read a lot of Shakespeare. I read a lot of the Shagian and Elizabethan theater that was contemporary of Shakespeare, but with the other writers. Um, so a lot of plays that added, you know, I majored in English, so I took stuff that could fit into an English major. And a lot of those courses were involved reading plays, but I also had the first exposure to Ibsen uh, and Chekhov uh, and George Bernard Shaw, who very quickly became an idol of mine. So I, I read a lot of those plays and I did an enormous amount of, of um, extracurricular theater. Um, uh, both acting and and directing sometimes. I, and just, uh, I, I wrote a couple of hasty pudding shows, so I got a little practice in that. And uh, I, I basically, by that time, I really loved theater, and I was doing as much of it as I could. And then at the at senior year, I won a Fulbright scholarship to go study acting for a year in London. Um, uh, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, uh, known for short as Lambda. And I was there for a year and had, you know, wow, and an really an opening to things about the, the art of acting that I never really suspected. It went way beyond ham it up good. Uh, I started talking, you know, I started really thinking about how do you discover the truth, the inside truth of the character that an author has written and um, how do you make that come alive in your own body, uh, your voice and the whole physical mechanism of your body. And um, so that was a, and that really put me on the course of, yes, I think I want to do this professionally. Um, how did you find that studying acting or the philosophy of acting was different in America from London? 
Um, well, it's hard to say because I never really went to acting school in America. Um, I do know, I mean, what people say is a difference in between the two countries. Um, just from my work, from what I had done as an amateur in, in the US compared to when I was in London was, there was a much stronger emphasis on the text. We had a, the, the, the former principal school of Lambda had a wonderful image that he used to talk about when he, when he taught classes. Uh, which is that uh, that performing and creating a role as an actor is kind of like becoming pregnant. The playwright has given you the basics of a character and you want to be loyal to that, but you have to translate it into your own body. And so the character kind of uses you to come alive through you and uh, some new... So it's neither exactly Hamlet nor it's me, but me as Hamlet. Um, it's a it's a joining of two my sensibilities, and but what they say in England and what I have believed in very strongly ever since is it's got to start with the script. It's got to start with what is you know what does the playwright want this actor to represent, and and what is what is the full meaning of this person's life. And a lot of actors, uh, some of the not so great actors that I've seen. Uh, including people who, you know, are very popular, often highly praised, um, but they don't, you know, they impose themselves, they impose their personality on the character rather than letting the character bloom through them. And I think that might be a difference. Um, I think people who had a better American education in acting might disagree with me, so you should talk to them, just to be fair. But my, but what I learned in London was definitely a very important emphasis on, on the script. Uh, even, you know, in, especially uh, in musicals where a lot of the, a lot of what you communicate is, is not just speaking, but singing. And you've got to have tremendous respect for lyrics, um, including above all, making sure that you enunciate very clearly. Uh, I think in, uh, maybe the British school is a little better on diction in, as a general principle um, than in America because they also have such a long tradition of going all the way back to Shakespeare and beyond of, of you know, these amazingly rich texts, wonderful, wonderful scripts, which include poetry as well as prose. And you have to kind of learn the difference between what, how do you read, a lot, how do you speak a line of poetry and how do you speak a line of, of, of prose? Um, they're all kind of different. And that, so that applies whether you're doing Shakespeare or, um, uh, or a musical, you know, or Gilbert and Sullivan or George Gershwin. So. One of the next things you did was singing on the street off an Italian opera. You I think sort of learned from doing that. Uh, yeah, well, that was great. I was hoping we'd get to talk about that because um, in, the, in the first, uh, well, God, I guess it's an, um, nearly 10 years. After I got back from London, um, I tried to get work in New York as an actor, and I was, I was a, a very young uh, character actor. For, and I just, you know, nothing, I did a bunch of auditions, but nothing ever happened. But at the same time, there was this big social transformation going on with young people in America, the, the era of Sgt. Pepper, and the Beatles and the, the hippie movement and the, the sense that 
while we could really create a different culture that's based not so much on competition as cooperation. And of course, one of the things that I always hated about the theater and never got accustomed to was the degree to which you have to compete um, with other people, uh, you know, who might be just as good or not, you know, and, and it just, it, cre it's a creates, it's a, it creates an atmosphere of tension as I think the whole notion of competition professionally in all levels creates a lot of tension that maybe isn't very good for people being health, healthy. So I just got um, the whole the, the possibility of opening a different kind of lifestyle. Um, and what I noticed was that, um, but I was at that point, I sort of took up singing opera just as a, for pleasure, for my own pleasure. Uh, I, when I started learning about the, the music and, and hearing ours, I just naturally picked, them, picked up uh, even singing. It wasn't necessarily the right words in Italian, speaking loyalty to a text, but I was able, kind of like Sid Caesar in the 50s, to do sort of gibberish language that sounded like it could have been Italian, it could have been German, I could have gotten away with it in order to basically sing music that I liked. And I would sing in the shower, and at some point in an apartment where I lived, the neighbors started asking me if I, if I would maybe do some singing in the air shower. And, um, anyway, I, people liked hearing me sing opera, so I started doing more and more of it. And finally, um, uh, one time, the first time that I was singing, in, uh, I had gone out to California to actually for an audition for ACT, and while I was there, I was um, just standing up on a bench in, a, in one of the parks in San Francisco, and just for that, to sort of calm my nerves before the audition, I started singing a couple of arias for fun, and somebody, unknowingly to me, some guy went around and, and passed a hat, and handed me this hat full of money. And I, that was the first time that I realized it was actually possible, you know, to be singing on the street and, and earn a living. And after moving to San Francisco, even though I did not got the job, get the job at ACT, somebody turned me on to an amazing spot at the end of Market Street where people used to line up for half an hour in advance to take the ferry to, across the bay to Salido. It was a big tourist attraction. Hundreds of people would line up um, four or five times a day in tourist season. And I, that was my spot. And I developed an act. Uh, that was a combination of singing and uh, which you might call snappy patter because I was pretty good on my feet of just, you know, talking to people um, in an amusing way, I'll, even though I've never ever done stand-up. But in a way, it kind of, that's kind of what I was doing is it just was working with all of these strangers. And a friend of mine who once came over said, you, 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 took, a whole, you took a crowd of strangers and turned them into an audience. And that was, a, that was really the lesson. That was the interesting thing. The, it's a long story to get to what I learned from being a street performer. But what I learned that it was, I thought, terribly valuable, even after you know, I came to New York and did some Broadway shows and stuff, was as a street performer, you don't get to hide behind anything like that. All you, you have is yourself. So you've got to be really honest. Um, you know, you can't fake it. You have, you, you are who you are. Well, tell us how you got involved with Joe Papp's Delacorte Theater. Yes. Um, let's, how did that happen? Um, yeah, the first thing I did, I had done two things at the Delacorte. Um, in the summer of 78, 
there was, um, well, part of it was that uh, over the years as a street performer, I learned the first couple of years, I, I sang a cappella, which is outrageous enough. But at some point, a, a friend that came down with a very old fashioned kind of 1970s recording device with a, probably an eight track cassette player or something. And he recorded my act, which I had never, nobody had ever done before. I got to actually listen to it. And the first thing I noticed was that I did tend to stray out of keys from one to another. And I realized, you know, unintentionally, I thought, I, I really got to have some kind, of, some kind of accompaniment to help me out. But I didn't play an instrument. And um, I saw a concertina in a music store window. Uh, and just around the time that I was beginning to think about that. And if you don't know, a concertina is a little squeeze box, you know, a small version of an accordion that you usually see pirates playing in movies. You know, it's a little six-sided squeeze box thing. Um, which, of course, the irony was that I actually got to play it in Pirates of Penzance because they knew that I could play it. They, they gave it to me as a prop. Um, but so anyway, so I had this concertina and somehow... Um, just I think through having lunch with a, with a friend who was already a professional in theater and we were joined by a person who was, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> this is so long ago, Charles, uh, this immediately popped into my mind, but my very first show in performing in New York was, um, and I, I got an equity card for it, was a, a collaboration of Stanley Silverman and Richard Foreman. It was a very strange kind of off-Broadway musical, but I got this to um, show off my singing chops. And um, because Stan, Richard Foreman and Stan Silverman were very, very big deal, particularly among off-Broadway folks, the uh, casting director from the public theater came to see the show and she invited me to come and audition for the next musical that they did which in fact was not a musical, but a production of, but all's well that ends well, in which they were introduced, they were putting some music into it. And so I came to the audition and just for good luck, I brought my concertina. And I thought, I bet nobody else is gonna show up playing one of these. And yeah, I mean, that actually got work for me the first few years in New York, um, simply because I played a, you know, a bizarre instrument that not many people uh, are any good at. Um, I can't, in fact, I don't pretend to be that good at it myself, but I mostly think of it as being a, something to accompany my singing. So I brought that to an audition and, uh, and I got the part, which was a, uh, I actually, it was like when, you know, people talk about carrying a spear in Shakespeare. I actually carried two different spears. I went two opposing armies. You know, I got dressed up as one army, I was in one uniform and then off in another scene, I was in the opposite army with a different uniform and a different spear. Um, but I got to sing a little bit and that led to me being invited by the director, Wilfred Leach, to stick around for the next summer production, which was The Taming of the Shrew with Meryl Streep and Meryl Julia. And I actually had a nice little part in that. And that led to me getting invited two years later uh, in the spring of 1980 to come to audition for Pirates of Penzance. Um, go ahead. Can you tell us about Pirates of Penzance. Tell us, you returned to the Delacorte Theater in 1999 to do The Taming of the Shrew again. And yeah. How had it or you changed by then? Ha! Huh. 
Well, it was very different. Um, the thing that was odd was that I was playing the same part. Um, I was the, I was the tailor in both productions, and so one thing that was wonderful about the the original time in '78 was that they made a they made a doc a documentary for PBS about that production. Meryl was just at the beginning of her uh, launching her film career at the time. In fact, if I I think. If memory serves, when while that Taming of the Shrew was playing, she was in starting rehearsals for Kramer versus Kramer. I think so. Dustin Hoffman actually came to production when I. That was the thing that was really kind of amazing about that show, The Delacour, because because of the star power of Meryl Streep and Raul Julia, all of these famous actors and directors started showing up. You know, and I began to see, to get used to Dustin Hoffman, Paul Newman and Robert De Niro and, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer, all these various people showing up backstage and, and getting to meet them and realize, oh God, these are just, you know, they're just ordinary people like me. Um, you know, they have the same questions and the same interests and, the, and uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to take people off of a pedestal, um, you know, and get to see the humanity there. And of course, that, I think that's also very helpful for any actor. To you want to, what you're always looking for is the humanity of a character who originally just exists as words on a page, and you've got to think about how do you make this person human. In the same way, you know, how do you make a famous celebrity that you maybe have dreamed of, of meeting one day? Um, where's their humanity in them? And that's when you begin to start learning to be able to look at the humanity in everybody, which is a nice way to get through the world, for one thing. Um, so. Um, oh, the difference between, so years later, um, well, it was a different kind of experience that because it was a, it was a completely different director and a very different cast. Um, not at the, and here, I, but I, you know, at that point I had already been a Tony nominee and, you know, it was a little more full of myself and I thought, well, what, what's the point of going back to do the same part, the little bit part that I did 20 years ago? God, was it? Yes, it was 20 years ago. So, um, but there wasn't anything happening. And it, uh, so it was one of those things where, you know, as an actor, you learn, you know, today, you know, today I'm the Prince of Denmark and tomorrow I'm carrying a spear again. So when you did Pirates of Penzance, that was your first Broadway show also. Tell us what it was like when they told you that you were transferring to Broadway. Did you expect it or was it a surprise? Um, Everybody was hoping. I mean, this, this show was such a gigantic hit. Um, it really was, uh, it was amazing. And it's interesting because, you know, it started, it started out just because of, of the star quality of Linda Ronstadt. Um, and Linda did not, you know, was, uh, she was, she was the person people started lining up for at five in the morning to get their free tickets, you know, because I mean, it was a very big deal. And here she was you know, not just singing in a rock concert, but playing, playing a role in the show. Um, but it, it turned out that the, the great comedy parts were Kevin Klein and George Rose, uh, and also Patricia Rutledge, who played Ruth in the park, although she didn't do it, she didn't continue on to do it on Broadway. But it turned into a very different kind of hit. 
that was so it was not just based on one big star attracting the audience, but a show and a show that was a hundred years old. In fact, I think Joe Papp very deliberately chose it that year because it was the hundredth anniversary. Right. Joe Papp thought, well, what a great opportunity, especially if I can nab this wonderful rock star who has beautiful soprano voice, absolutely gorgeous. I remember the first day I sat in the rehearsal room and was just like, you know, sitting there listening to the sound of Linda's voice coming out directly out of her throat with no microphone uh, interfering, just the pure acoustic sound of her voice. I thought, I can't believe that I'm getting paid for this. It was, so, you know, I mean, it's really, her, the sound of her voice was celestial. Still is, I think, the last I heard of her singing. Um, so it looked like it was going to be something very, very special. And once it opened and once it was playing to these ecstatic audiences and hundreds, if not thousands of more people tried to get in who couldn't get tickets because it was so popular. It was, you know, it seemed like this, um, the, the rumors started going around that if we could get a theater, it would move to Broadway. Um, and what was curious was I had, an, I had already been hired for another job, um, and the, which overlapped with the when Pirates closed at the Delacorte, because they extended it for a week, and I had already signed a contract to go up to do this new musical at the Goodspeed, uh, which I couldn't get out of. And um, but they, but they, uh, but that's why if you see there is a tape, there's a video of the production from the park. Of, of Pirates um, with the original park production, the original park cast. But um, my understudy took over the role of Samuel for that last week, because uh, I had to go up to Connecticut and do this other show, which went nowhere, as it turned out. But the, the run of that show exactly coincided with when rehearsals for the Broadway version of Pirates started up again, which was sometime in December, I'm pretty sure. Um, they had to reconceive the show for a proscenium stage and a big Broadway house. And Estelle Parsons took over the role of Ruth from Patricia, and she had a whole new way of playing the role, which was really interesting to watch. So, um, so I, I had gone off to do this other show at, at the Goodspeed with the awareness that if, the, if they actually nailed the contract, to get the show to open on Broadway for the for the, that coming season, um, they said they would offer me. I'd get the part again, so they liked me enough, and that was all set up. So I was able to just immediately. So I worked nonstop from Pirates in the Park to Zapata at the Good Speed, and going right back into rehearsal. But of course, it's very different. I mean, a rehearsal room for Broadway. It's just got a whole other kind of glamour about it. And everybody, this is true. Of course, there's a lot more money. And there's people who are realizing, oh my God, I'm actually going to make my my Broadway debut. And uh, it's, it's doing. And I had, you know, the, was, I had the first solo vocal line in the show. It begins with a chorus of pirates and then the character of Samuel. It's interesting because the character is called Samuel, but he's never named on stage. So nobody ever, nobody ever looked at me and said, hey, Samuel, what's up? You know, it was just like, uh, but I had to, I told people, you know, I would tell people who I played Samuel and they would go, who's that? And I was like, I'm the first mate. You know, if you're always looking at Kevin Klein, I'm right next to him. And of course, people were always looking at Kevin Klein. So it was a very nice uh, exposure. And um, 
And then, of course, then the, the actual the first night on Broadway, the first preview, and then the open night, you know, everything is so kind of grand and, and but terribly exciting. I mean, you get the sense that this is this is one of the better educated audiences, in addition to although I shouldn't say that about the Delacorte, because the audiences at the Delacorte are really, really smart. Yeah. So you've been you were saying that Pirates of Penzance was a big hit off Broadway. And it was a hit on Broadway too. And you've been in several hits on Broadway, that and Cats. And when do you think in the process you usually know when something's going to be a big hit like that? Ah, that's a great question. Um, because in a way you never know. Uh, you know, you've, you, you've got to have the right audience at the right time on the right date. Um, I'm trying to think there was, there was, I think there was never any doubt in anybody's mind about Pirates because we had done it. Cats was, I mean, Cats was a huge hit in London. So there was a big uh, box office demand for it. And there was just a question where it has, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber had already brought Evita to Broadway and that was a hit. Um, and it was, you know, people kind of imagine, oh, Cats is going to be a big hit, and they certainly launched. Um, you know, it was an expensive production. And the Schuberts, you know, one factoid about it was that the Schuberts were so confident that it would pay off that they redid the Winter Garden Theater, and they made, you know, they drilled, they dug a hole in the roof, uh, cut a hole, I should say, you know, to accommodate this set piece that would lower something from the ceiling so that Grisabella could rise up to the heavy side layer, the finale of the show. And um, yeah, I mean, they just made tremendous, and they painted the entire interior of the theater black, which up to then had been one of your classic gold and red and beautiful gilded, you know, incredibly ornate theaters. And the whole interior was painted black. So it was, it was very much changed. And there was a lot of anticipation about this big ho hit coming from London and memory. So-so. Uh, there were, there were a lot of complaints. Uh, they were the complaints that over the years, many, many more people <laughs> have made about that show, which is that it's much, it's more of a review than a play. If you know the different, the distinction for a musical, you want you typically people expect a story, a plot. And the story of cats is just, you know, all these cats get together one night out of the year and one of them is going to get picked to go to the heavy side layer. And of course the typical audience member doesn't know what that is yet. You know, why would they? Um, but that's all there is. And it's just so like every, you know, one act after another comes out as a sort of competition. Uh, I hope it's me. I hope I'm the one who wins to get, you know, to go up floating on a tire and disappear into the ceiling, which is of course, it's not that hard to figure out that Grisabella is going to be the one. There's <laughs> not a great deal of suspense about that. And people don't, you know, the suspense doesn't really factor into it because the show is so entertaining. I think it's a, it's a wonderful score. The songs are just one great after another. And they were really put over by the original cast very beautifully. But, you know, the, all the critics pointed out, this isn't really a musical. There's not really a story here. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's very inventive. It's visually astonishing. Um, I got a great review in the Times. Betty got a great review. We, we, some people, various people were singled out. Um, and that was lovely. But, you know, it was unclear from the reviews 
um, how it would do. But there was this great, you know, the uh, Bernie Jacobs, the co-chair of the, of the Schubert organization at that time, came the very next day and reported, you know, hung around backstage to talk to everybody in the cast. And he said, you know, we're gonna, this show is going to run. We, we broke the box office record at the Winter Garden that day. Um, you know, in parenthesis, in spite of the reviews, one might say, but he just, you know, it was like, we did, we broke the, we broke the record. It was a fantastic response. And um, he said, it's going to run longer than a chorus line. But so there was, a, I don't think there was ever a question of, geez, we might, you know, we might have to close next week. Yeah. Uh, that was never an issue. And it was never an issue with, um, with Peter Pan on Broadway. Although that was, you know, I mean, because Peter Pan just always, had, there's an there's always an audience for Peter Pan, you know, you know. But also, you know, there, again, the reviews were the, were so so. Though that at that point, you know, they were mixed. I mean, there were a lot of things that people liked, and then, although that I remember the, the critic for the Times, whom I will not mention, um, basically started out his review by saying, "I hate this show. I've never liked it. <laughs> now I have to review it." I'm like, "Oh dear, well, okay, that's the way you feel." Um, but it was, you know, I mean, it was always, I mean, at that time we had played about 30 cities on a national tour before coming to Broadway. So that was really interesting because, you know, we really tested it with audiences in, in um, almost every state. I mean, I think we played everywhere but Alaska, Alabama, and Mississippi, also different. So going back to Cats for a little bit, sure. um, the roles that you had done prior to Cats hadn't really been dance roles, but Cats is a very big dance show. And yeah. was that a skill you already had or one you sort of had to learn? Oh, I definitely had to learn. Um, you know, I was, I was always what, you know, people call an actor who moves well, but certainly not a trained dancer. Although, I mean, at Lambda, we'd had classes in dance as well as the other, you know, comparable theater arts. Um, but no, and, and in fact, uh, I mean, when I was hired for Cats, which was in February, with an awareness that rehearsals were going to start until August, um, the producers had insisted, and they paid for it, so you know, it was certainly their right to insist, uh, they insisted that I get dance training. And they very and, and Jillian Lynn, the car. I mean, she knew exactly. I mean, she knew what I needed to acquire, as far as you know. I, I was never in the Jellicle Ball, except for a very brief instant. You know, there were a couple of. There's a few roles in cats that are non-dancing, essentially. You got you got to move gracefully for Old Deuteronomy and of course Grisabella, um, and and Gus, who's you know so old and decrepit. Anyway. Um, but you know they for in order to be even to be in the in the ensemble numbers and certainly in the opening number and not look like a ringer as they very suavely put it they said no you need to go to a study at a jazz class and even ballet and ballet was really like that was very daunting for me because i'd never even imagined um, being a, you know, doing any kind of ballet moves at all. And, and they said, oh, you don't have to go. And I've never even been in a ballet class. So when they ex explained and said, just work at the bar, because typically every uh, ballet classes start at the bar and then you move to the center and they're actually, you're, uh, you know, <laughs> you have to move on your own. You're 
holding on to anything, basically. And they said, don't worry about that. You know, you don't have to make beautiful ballet-like type poses and stuff, but just learn the technique of discipline, you know, of, of the bar, first position, second position, third position, plie, elevate, all that. Um, and I did that from February till August. So um, five days a week, um, some one or sometimes two classes a day. And it was, uh, uh, well, I was in great shape physically, but it was also very interesting to see um, the difference in my attitude compared to her, especially kids in ballet class who were all typically 20 years younger than me, who were very serious about wanting, about being a ballet dancer and they wanted to be really, really good and get everything exactly right. And, you know, I, the, there was one teacher who at one point who said, who, and they knew why I was there. They realized that I was not look, looking to have a, build up a career in, in ballet all of a sudden. Um, you know, and they said, well, you know, as long as you look like you're having fun, uh, you'll be a good example for the others <laughs> uh, because they all take it so terribly seriously. And I just thought, well, you know, okay, but I, if it's not fun, I don't want to do it. But it was, and it was, you know, I mean, it was taxing and I was, I had to develop a lot of muscles and muscle responses and all kinds of stuff that uh, I had never really worked on. And um, it was a new world. But I felt, but and even then when, you know, when I saw what some of the, because Cats recruited for its original cast, the cream of Broadway dancers from the last previous seasons. I mean, they had this dancing stars from West Side Story and uh, Fosse and Chorus Line. And I think maybe even one other big dance show, I forgot the name, but you know, I mean, all of these uh, from very different groups, from very different backgrounds and different styles of choreography from Fosse to Jerome Robbins and stuff in between. And I, you know, I stared at these folks looking like, I could move like that <laughs> to save my life. But, you know, it was great that I had something that I could do that was right for the show and I was able to contribute as much. So as you were saying, Cats must have been a very taxing show, both physically and vocally. Did you have to sort of put your, the other aspects of your life on hold while you were doing that to keep yourself in performing condition? Um... I think to some extent, but you know, especially in, at the beginning, uh, when it was just starting, and especially when it came to the very, very late in the process staging of Growl Tiger's uh, flashback, the Growl Tiger's last stand on the on the pirate ship. You know, this huge multi-level set that only came in at the very last minute in rehearsal time, and uh, I knew that I was going to have to do. I mean, th that was a number that basically. Was I carried um, for about, I don't know, seems like five to 10 minutes or so, including if you include Gus the Theater Cat as well. And so I knew that I was gonna have to be in really great shape for that. So I, so I worked very, very hard and, 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 and kept the training going. After the show had been running for a while, it began to be in the norm. It's like, okay, I can do this. Uh, uh, I noticed that all of the dancers would do a certain amount of bar warm up for the actual performance, which are, I always did, the thing, the hard thing for me was the vocal warm up in the second act, in the intermission that I would do, because that's when I had to do the big aria and, and um, you know, end with a ringing and beautiful and reliable high B flat. So that was in my big like space when I have to get really start getting buckled down here and 
be aware of what I'm gonna be doing in just a very few short minutes, was the second act intermission. So I also, at the same time that I was doing this vocalizing, making sure that all the notes were there, uh, I'm climbing into a 35 pound costume because it had all of this, the, the mechanism inside that made the shoulders blow up and, you know, it all and inflated and did this very spectacular thing. And uh, so that, that, that uh, weighed huge. I sweat like crazy. I mean, by the end of that number, I was really just dripping wet. And, and that, that kept me in shape as much as anything, as long as, as long as I got to do that number eight times a week. Um, I could pretty much take it easy the rest of the time, except, of course, for vocally, and really have to stay in shape for that. How a year, also, you know, years later, um, I was part of the training faculty of Martina Arroyo's uh, Prelude to Performance, which was training young opera singers, a wonderful program for, for aspiring young opera singers. And it was, so at this point, I'm also like, you know, working with 20 year olds, mostly, and, and uh, just developing a whole new level of respect for anyone that dedicated themselves to having a professional singing career in opera, which is the most demanding of all of them. And, um, it, you know, bringing some of the, some of the background from Cats also. And the same, kind of the same thing that I noticed in the, in the ballet class uh, 25 years before, that they're all working so hard, they're not bringing the sense of fun into this. And um, I, I think that there's two kinds of performers. There's, there's Fred Astaire who makes it look so easy. And then there's Judy Garland who makes it look really hard. You kind of, you're aware of, you know, like the struggle that she's going through. And both of them are tremendously appealing as performers and, and they're going after a different, it's a different technique. But I always thought it's, it's, it's my, my preference is the people who make it look easy are the ones that you leave the theater and you start dancing as soon as you walk out the door, you know, as, as you tend to do with Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly. It's like, he, they, make, they make it look, oh, I could do that. And um, there, is, there are opera singers who have that also. Luciano, Luciano Pavarotti had that, that quality that just, there was just this open-hearted, enjoyment that he brought um and i tried to introduce that when i was when i was teaching um acting to opera singers say yes you have to think about your vocal technique and your placement and all of these technical demands and you're also going to be playing a character and bringing someone to life in that way but don't ever forget to enjoy it no matter how hard you have to work at, to make it good don't forget to enjoy it because that's a quality that makes audiences come back for more, at least in my opinion. Was it that sense of fun and enjoyment that you think kept you from getting sort of bored during the long run of Cats? For a long time it did. Um, finally, it was, uh, you know, I, I, finally, because I mean, I had a, I was in Cats for over a year. I was in Pirates for, uh, over, I mean, if you count the Delacorte stuff, it was well over a year. And there's a certain point, you know, it was interesting when, when um, you asked earlier about the, when, the, when Pirates decided to move to Broadway. Uh, when we were at the Delacorte, I shared uh, the dressing room with George Rose, who had, you know, I mean, he started out carrying a spear for Laurence Olivier in the 1940s and Richard III. I mean, he was this amazing veteran of all of these great shows. 
And when the announcement was made that we were moving to Broadway, I remember George uh, turned to me and said, have you, ever, uh, have you ever been in the long run? And I said, uh, no. And he said, it's a skill that you have to learn, and the only way you can learn it is by doing it. That you only, you know, until you figure out how to make a performance look fresh the 400th time that you've done it, you know, and including the second time today, you already did this. And it's, it's very hard not, you know, to have a sense of deja vu, literally overwhelmed, you know, and people used to, you know, Ethel Merman used to tell stories about, you know, yeah, I could be singing Rose's turn, but I was thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner. Is, you know, sometimes in a really, really long run, the only help is to start to, start to see your performance through the audience's eyes. And, and, and think, yeah, this, is, this, this moment is going to be brand new for somebody. Not everybody. I mean, for example, I had this really weird experience. I, I did Les Mis in London. I played Thenardier there for six months. And I was warned by the, uh, the kids who, who, who had already played it for a year in London. They said, okay, on Saturday matinees, you're going to see a pair of twins, women in their 30s, who dress alike identically and sit in the front row at every Saturday matinee. They've been coming since the show opened. They are all there. They are all, you know, and you'll see them, you know, next Saturday, you'll see those two women and they're identical twins. I said, yeah, I said, they'll be at every Saturday matinee from now on. And they were, and it was very difficult to do to create that illusion of somebody seeing it for the first time when you know <laughs> these exact literally to these two ladies, you know, oh yeah, they know everything I'm going to do. In fact, they're mouthing the words along with me a lot of the time. They're actually singing the words. And that's, that's a challenge. So, I mean, in my case, finally, um, with every long run, I left the show and it was still running. Because I, I, at some point, you know, invariably I got to where I just can't do this again. It's not. Bonnie Simmons, on the other hand, and then Dyke, my God, uh, Marlena Danielle did cats for the entire run, the entire run of the show, 18 years. And I saw the, cl the closing performance and she was as electrifying as she had been at first. You know, I just thought this woman's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, she managed to, you know, but uh, it was beyond what I felt that I could do at the time, so I moved on. I had great respect for anybody who can stay. Like the guy that broke a, a Guinness Book of Records for staying in Phantom longer than anybody had ever done a Broadway show. It was just amazing. So next I want to ask you to tell us about your Tony nomination. So now this was 1983, you know, I don't know if they announced, if they announced the Tony nominations on video the way they do now. Um, so I guess they would have, you know, obviously it was a great deal of an anticipation before the Tonys were announced and that toward the, at the end of May, you know, when the end of the, when the season came and, but that was it as far as, as far as anybody could get a nomination. Um, people had been sort of, uh, priming me for the likelihood that I would get one because I had such a standout role in the show. Um, but it's, you know, I really cannot recall what it was like to actually get the news. 
what I remember was uh, I remember this the invitations started happening immediately like that. Okay, so this means there's going to be a luncheon on such and such a day. All the nominees are all going to be at this luncheon, and and so uh, Betty and Harry Broner and I, who all the three nominees for the show, um, everybody was in the show was nominated for a supporting role because there was no no name above the title. Yeah, cats. So, um, but all of us went to this luncheon and we were, we went and we drove home in uh, um, I'm, I'm dropping out on, and in Bernie's uh, limo, Mr. Jacobs, um, you know, because he, he was there, obviously he was the producer of the show and he was, the show was nominated on his behalf. He would have, he would have, and he was the guy that collected the award. Uh, Bernie Jacobs and Jerry Schoenfeld were the lead American producers for the Schubert's and Cameron McIntosh. So all of them are at this luncheon and all these very grand people. And then the, the thing that I remember about that year, that time more than anything else was driving back to the theater because I think the luncheon was just in time for us to get to a matinee. It was probably on a Wednesday and just driving back to the theater in Bernie's limousine. <laughs> I remember that more than anything. And the little certificate that everybody got. A little certificate with, a, with, a, with an imprint of the Tony Award um, in silver ink on, on the actual on the certificate, which of course I still have. <laughs> but but pretty much from the, from the get go, uh, nobody anticipated that I could win because the if you will the competition. I hate to put it, especially as someone who, as I said, was not a big fan of competition. But my competitor in the nominating. Uh, and the nominees that year was um, was Tony Coles, who was a 72-year-old of tap dance, you know, for years and years and years, and, and much admired and much respected. And you know, the senior guy, it's not every time, look, it's his turn. Um, he's almost almost for sure going to win it. So I went to the award without a lot, without too much anticipation. I mean, it was very, it was funny getting all dressed up and being there and all these, you know, people around in the theater and, and those moments as they begin to call the names off and stuff. So, you know, but I, I didn't think, I expected to be disappointed. So I wasn't in that sense. Um, and it was, you know, it was a wonderful night. I'll never certainly not forget it. Was there any resentment or anything in the cast about who got nominated and who didn't? Mm, well, if so, nobody ever talked about it. Um, I remember there were, you know, every, every, we all had our own favorites. I mean, I was, I was sure that Tim Scott, who was Mr. Mistopheles, was such an amazing dancer, and he had this huge, uh, huge solo dance number, essentially, in the second act. Um, I thought, I mean, let's put it this way, I thought he deserved a nomination. I thought Terry Mann as Rum Tum Tugger deserved a nomination. He was a tremendous audience favorite. Um, and I think, you know, but, but uh, mostly it was, it was very collegial, you know, everybody was very sweet to me. And, and then the hard part was, was that, that Harry and I were both nominated in the same category and, and you know, we were the we were fast friends. It's not like it was going to be any kind of, of hostility. But, although I do remember actually in that in that limo ride back coming home from the luncheon uh, with Bernie Jacobs, Bernie's the one who said, "You know, you know, it's a, it's too bad that you two guys might cancel each other out uh, and get the nomination and the award go to someone else 
because you're both in the same show. But um, that was going to happen anyway, most likely. So uh, uh, that just sort of confirmed in me the sense of, well, I won't get my hopes up too much because um, I really don't think I'm going to walk away with a, with a trophy in my hand. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things you're most famous for, which I definitely want to ask you about, is writing the great book, A Cat's Diary, about the making of that musical, which to all our listeners, I definitely recommend that you read. So when you were keeping the diary during the production, was it always with the intent of publishing it or no? Never, absolutely never. You know, it was really just for me. And it was basically because, because the previous year I had seen Nicholas Nickleby, the, 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 the Royal Shakespeare Company production, the Trevor Nunn, directed and you know the the because I thought that was such an incredible piece of theater really one of the highlights of my whole life in theater I just thought you know whatever Trevor Nunn does as a director I want to keep notes about because this is going to come in very handy someday and there actually was a point in the rehearsal where Trevor caught me writing in a notebook and he grabbed it out of my hands and said is, said, is this a journal? I said, yes. And uh, he said, are you planning to publish this? I said, no, I mean, I really wasn't. Uh, but he had been burned because I guess somebody who, who was an assistant of his during the Nicholas Nickleby project wrote a book about it, you know, did publish what was exactly that, a, a somewhat edited journal. And, um, Trevor and, his, and John Cairn, the co-director of Nickleby, were both uh, very upset about the book that came out. Uh, they, didn't, they couldn't do anything to stop it, but they weren't happy about it. I guess they, they were portrayed properly. But as, um, not having been there, I couldn't say. But uh, when, you know, I, when Trevor only returned my journal to me with my promise that I wouldn't publish it, and I meant it, and, I, and I, I had never intended to publish it in the first place. And it was only until much, much later when actually when Katz was getting ready to close, and I was getting ready to do the uh, Jolson Company show. And there was a meeting with the, the Jolson Company staff and the, 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 um, the our press rep. And I just happened, and, and you know, people were talking about, you know, how, they were just saying over lunch, how do you feel about cats closing are you you know is that a moment or are you sentimental about it or nostalgic how do you feel and i said well you know it's funny because I, I kept a journal of the whole thing and i haven't looked at it since 1982 and I said, how much did you say so oh, i don't know just it's all in my own handwriting I, back in the day that people used to write in cursive um i said it's all my handwriting and i just uh you know i never had asked anybody to read it and they said oh, you know, there, there are press organizations that are looking for something new and original to say about cats. Now that it's getting ready to close, would you be willing to share what you wrote with anyone? And I said, well, you know, I made a promise 20 years ago. But, I, you know, I don't think at this point, I very much doubt that Trevor would care. Uh, um, but, let, you know, where, where would you want me to go to? And... Um, I think it was, it was, uh, who was the original? It was a Broadway.org, the, the, the Broadway published uh, selections from it. Because I, what they, what I did was I Xeroxed a few pages of, of choice pages. Um, and that went online 
And I got a call from Smith and Krauss book publishers to say, how much more do you have? And I said, it's every day from the first day of rehearsal until uh, Trevor's farewell speech after he opened. A couple of nights after the show opened, he flew back to England. Um, so every single day I wrote something. Um, they said, can we read it? I said, well, you'd have to read my handwriting, which is fortunately quite legible. Um, and they said, yeah, well, please send it. You know, if you just Xerox it, we'll, you know, we'll have somebody uh, set it up in type. We'll get someone to transcribe it for you. And I said, okay, by me. Um, so, I, so I Xeroxed every page and I sent them to these folks. And it was really wonderful. I mean, the, the, um, the, the publisher there said, if I didn't see this in your own handwriting, and realized that it was fun. I would have thought that you that you were that you edited it because it's so well written. It's oh. just very clear. Um, you know, I guess I get to plug myself one more time. Why not? That's what when it came out, was anyone's feelings hurt, or did everyone pretty much say that's the truth? It's okay that you published it. As a matter of fact, you know, when that when when Smith and Krauss actually went ahead with the with the publication, with the choice to do it and they picked the date and everything. I said, all right, I have to contact Trevor first because I did make this promise. And, um, you know, I, I'm now that, you know, I wanna know what he has to say about it. And he ended up, of course, writing the introduction to the book, which was, which was especially delightful. Um, so um, the first feedback I got from somebody involved in the company was, was Trevor saying, yes, I know, I'd be happy to write an introduction. Um, I don't think I had anything particularly negative to say about anyone. So there really wasn't anything that would get, could get anybody mad. Um, yeah, I'll stick with that. <laughs> and then, well, I mean, looking back, I think there were a couple of pages where I might have uh, had um, some doubts about a couple of people. In the production, it was in fact, and I do remember writing about this. There was a young woman who was um, originally hired to be among the, in the Cats ensemble, and she, and there was something she just I could just tell in, in the days, the first couple of days of rehearsal and improvisation, that she she wasn't on the same page as everybody. The kind of knowing and suspicious and non-cooperative quality. About this woman, and sure enough, within three or four days, she was no longer in the show. Uh, so as you, I don't even remember her name now because she ne we never heard from her again. But it's interesting to think that um, I had this suspicion that turned out to be, oh yeah, I'm not the only one who feels this way because she was out. But everybody else, I mean, it was such a great experience. You know, I mean, first of all, people were so optimistic uh, about its likelihood of being a big hit. Um, you know, I mean, there have been two or three thousand people auditioned for it. You know, it was of, of whom, or it was submitted. I think out of which I think they saw about twelve hundred. I forget the detail, but I actually knew the statistic at one point. It was something like that. And you know, out of twelve hundred people, they picked a couple of dozen. Uh, so it was an incredibly thrilling deal to be to realize, oh yeah, I'm going to get to do this and all these other people must be even better than me. And they were. 
uh, in what you know everybody was terrific at what they did. So and and and, kind of, and Trevor had a lot to do with that. I mean, he really fostered an atmosphere of cooperation yeah. and participation, and everybody getting a chance to be who they were. It was you know it was it was non-hierarchical. It was really uh, you know there was a great sense of democracy about that, which of course is what the show is about. So it made a lot of sense for that. Tell us about being a standby in Oliver. What did you do in the times when you didn't get to go on? Well, I watched the show, and I watched the show uh, not on, of course, you know, like when it was in performance, but in rehearsal. I think it was the first the first time the show had been revived uh, since it was on and originally on Broadway in the '60s, and with with the original Fagan, Ron Moody, and Patti Lupone. Um, so it was really interesting to come into, it was the first time I'd ever been at rehearsals that I wasn't participating. Uh, and it was really interesting to just sit on the sidelines and, and watch how, how the work got done. Um, and I have to say it was not, it, was, it, was not, it ended up being an un, un, unhappy experience. First of all, because the show closed very, very quickly. Um, uh, it got a terrible review from the Times, and it it it, um, it stemmed from a lot of problems that that people had uh, with the director, who came in later, who actually didn't. He was the, Peter Coe, I think. He was the original director of Oliver the first time around, and he had then gone on to direct the London revival. It was it was another Cameron Mackintosh production, which is how I and got involved in it. Because um, you know they just asked me directly from there if I wanted to do that, and um, so me memorize and um, so they brought over the director, but he didn't. The first couple of weeks of rehearsal, the assistant director did all of the staging, and he was terrific. And there were all these kids, and they were very young. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, we actually had Oliver was he might even have been seven or eight. I mean, he was really really small. Um, and very inexperienced. And the original, so Jeff, the assistant director at first, was wonderful with him and with all of the other kids. And then um, the, the Peter, Peter came in from London for the final two weeks, and I had the sense that he was he had already done it once, and he was kind of bored. Mm -hmm. And um, so it, it was it was and coming directly out of the Cats experience, it was like the exact. You know, I'm only saying this because he is deceased as is Ron Moody, you know, I would, you know, if they were alive, I wouldn't tell uh, negative stories about them, but they both made a lot of problems, unfortunately. And I, that was a place where I learned, well, that's what happens in the theater too. Um, you know, it was very interesting to just be on the sidelines and not, you know, try, trying to, and not to be too conspicuous, trying to learn the role. Uh, and I wanted to learn it my own way. And then, and then Ron Moody came in. And uh, once when we moved to the theater, Ron became very, very difficult. I don't know why. Um, but I remember we had a very, very talented, artful dodger. And whenever he came up with a new bit that was funny, Ron would have, have it removed. He would actually say, no, he said, I want to do that. Um, so he was... He was not terribly generous, and he was especially not generous with me. He actually asked that his understudy not get within three feet of him. It was almost like social, social distancing several decades too early. Um, and I thought, well, okay, that's, you know, that's the star's prerogative. If he, if he wants to be that way, it's, you know, I, I can live with that and just watch it from the sidelines. 
But I began to see all this other like political stuff happening that 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 just indicated that people weren't weren't happy with what was going on. And it showed finally when the sh the show got a really really bad review from the Times. I thought uh, I thought Patty Lapone was going to be sensational as Nancy. She was absolutely wonderful vocally and and. It was another case where the director just kept chipping away at her and, and negative criticism mm -hmm. without ever, you know, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I, over the years watching in theater, it was very obvious that, um, for example, the exact opposite was Graciela Danielle, who did the original musical staging for Pirates of Penzance. And I remember what people used to say about Grazi is that she was so positive and enthusiastic and receptive for everything that every actor brought in to rehearsal, that you'd want to find something new to bring in the next day. You know, it was like there was this wonderful invitation to just keep giving me the best thing that you're capable of. Keep being as good as you can, keep being inventive and keep working and I, you know, I want to see it. Whereas with, with, with this director and Oliver, it was like, you know, if we didn't do it that way in London, I, you know, don't even think of it. So there was a great deal of backbiting and people were unhappy and the review came out and uh, the show closed in about, I think it had a week, a run of two weeks, which was, you know, pretty much a, a very different uh, experience for having been in a show that had, both of the ones that I'd done on Broadway had run for a year and I left while they were still running. So I never got to got on, then never got to go on as Fagan and that was, that was disappointing because I think once or twice there was time for an understudy rehearsal once the show had actually opened. So I got to walk through the role, not in costume and no makeup or anything like that. And, and um, uh, at that point, the, the stage manager was the guy who was in charge of the understudy rehearsal, so the, you know, the brush up and understudy rehearsal. So I was kind of free to try things that, that maybe you know, Ron wasn't doing. And I, I said, I had a different take on Fagan. Um, uh, so, but I never actually got to try it out in front of an audience. It was interesting. So it, it ended up being um, a disappointment, and unfortunately, because I think it's such a terrific show. And the cast, you know, started out wonderfully. They could have been really, really great. Um, and, you know, had the usual actor's willingness to really, let's, let's make this a terrific experience for everybody. And it just unfortunately fell into the hands of a couple of people who proved to be difficult. and. You know, but that's, as I say, showbiz trying to do. Uh, Ron, it was very important to Ron, uh, again, not to, to speak ill of the dead, but here I am um, doing it. Uh, Ron had a book in his dressing room of ad libs from every production that he had done over the years and the movie as well. You know, and he, but he would consult it before every performance. And instead of you know, doing, being spontaneous, he would just riff through this book. And the book was the size of an old-fashioned telephone book. You know, it was really, really thick. And it was just, kind of, you know, it was ad-libs that he had done and had been doing for years. And it was kind of like, let's see, what shall I do tonight? So there was this sense of, you know, he was giving a performance that was uh, uh, channeled from a previous time, let's just say. Whereas I thought, you know, I wanted to try something really different with Fagan. I, I didn't. I didn't want the audience to like Fagan. I wanted Fagan to be really scary. Uh, and when I finally got, so I never got to do that as Fagan, but I did have the chance, um, the next one I finally came to Broadway with Peter Pan as Captain Hook with, for Kathy, uh, Kathy Rigby. Um, and they said from the get-go, they, they wanted 
Captain Hook to be really, really frightening. They wanted to do a, a Peter Pan for an audience of kids who had grown up with Star Wars and knew who Darth Vader was. You know, and they wanted Captain Hook to be very Darth Vader-like. And so I, you know, it was really a wonderful opportunity to delve into this character and not worry about, will the audience like me? So next, let's talk about your solo show, Jolson and Company, which you both acted in and wrote. So what was it that originally attracted you to the idea of Al Jolson? Well, um, no, I have to correct you though. It was, it was not a solo show, although it started out as oh. a, a solo show, a different script. Uh, the story that, that you're asking for the background of was that um, Jay Burko, a very good friend of mine who was a, direct, a director, had been offered this one-man show called Jolson. Um, and he said, oh, I know the perfect actor to do this because I had a bolt. I mean, people had been actually comparing me to Al Jolson for years and years and years, a certain kind of style of bravado or, you know, whatever you want to call it that, that I might bring to the stage, uh, and pizzazz. Uh, so, you know, he asked me, so anyway, Jay said, this was for a, a tour, a short tour in Florida um back in the late 90s and so he asked me if i want to do it and i said yeah that sounds like fun and then you know i looked at all the material and the script was very interesting but there were and there were all of these great old songs you know swanee and rockabye your baby and uh, april showers uh you know one after and you made me love you i mean one after another wonderful old classics from the 19 teens and 20s that jolson introduced and made into popular hits. So the songs were terrific material. The problem that Jay and I both agreed on with the, the solo show was Al Jolson in reality was such an egomaniac. He was a man who had no self-knowledge at all. Uh, you know, he just thought he was, he was narcissistic and vain and, and egotistical. So no one, you, his version of his life got tired very quickly because oh yeah i was so terrific and then i was great doing this and then i was great doing this and then oh then i was so terrific with that and it's like well okay but where's the drama um apart and so but we thought you know if we could if we turned if we took his life and added a couple of characters and what the idea that we eventually came up with for jolson and company was um to have a, to another man and a woman who would play all of the other men and women in jolson's life and we were we found a fantastic cast. We first so we brought the idea to to uh, James Morgan at the York, and he loved the script. And we and we cast two wonderful actors, Bob Arry to play all of the guys, and Nancy Anderson, um, who that, that was one of her first big uh, shows, I think, a really great role that, that certainly put her very deservedly in the spotlight. Um, she played all of the women in Jolson's life, his three different wives and his mother and uh, Mae West, a lot of different people. So it was a great showcase role for her. And um, so that's how the show got on its feet. Um, and, you know, the main thing was to say, this is how, you know, he was constantly getting in arguments with people that he worked with or was married to, uh, being that, you know, because that was the kind of guy that he was. And by adding those characters, we were able to make it, uh, into something that had a lot more dramatic drive, in addition to using all of these Jolson songs, and actually at some point saying, you know, here's a song 
we could put this in the dramatic context that would give the song a different spin than the way you normally hear it. Um, and so that part, you know, so there are a lot of interesting things to deal to how to examine a very, very interesting character and guy also who, uh, in spite of being a tremendous star, and if you, you know, if you research Jolson's role in American show business, uh, he was, he was absolutely the first superstar. He was the first man to sell a million records, uh, back in the age of, in the age of 78, I think, but still. You know, he sold um, sold a million million records. He, of course, made the first talking picture. You know, he'll be un, he'll never be forgotten because of that. Even though it's it's not an entirely talking picture, some of it has silent subtitles. And uh, but him, you know, this kind of archetypal figure who also was associated with um, you know, with blackface, which has now become just entirely unacceptable. And 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 when we look back on it now, it's sort of incomprehensible that this was actually considered popular entertainment. But one of the things we felt that we had to do, because we had to put Jolson in blackface, we had to show him the way that he did what he did, uh, we wanted to, to um, create some background of what, why he needed blackface, what it was for, what he felt emotionally he could do behind that mask, if you will, um, that he couldn't do just singing uh, in his own persona. And that got really interesting because it dealt with the whole, you know, beginnings of, of the participation of African-Americans in American show business. That Jolt, because, somehow because of the Jolson's enormous popularity as a blackface performer, he was able to open the door for a lot of, for genuine African-American performers to have bigger roles and more conspicuous careers in show business than they had ever had before. And part of it was because he insisted on popularizing a style of singing that authentically belonged to African Americans, and that he was just sort of, he was copying and mimicking. Um, and it turned him, you know, surprisingly, and we look back on it now, as this gigantic star that he, throughout the nineteen, the teens, and the twenties, you know, I mean, at the Winter Garden. Of course, another fun thing for us was that. Winter Garden was where Cats played for all of those, for, you know, all of its time. So I'm thinking, no, Cats never moved. It spent its entire run at the Winter Garden. And here, and there, there, was, there was a framed picture in the lobby of the Winter Garden of Al Jolson. So I thought, well, this is, this is an interesting role for me to be doing and to play this character under the circumstances. So uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of magnetism from Al Jolson and me. Uh, and plus that he was a diff so different from me personally as a character, I think. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say, I hope I've never reached that level of egotism, uh, except maybe in my worst moments sometimes, uh, like us all. But he, uh, you know, it was like, in a way, kind of like, you know, well, you know, it was, it was also like playing similar to Tenardier. In fact, it's interesting to me how many times in my career I've played villains. I've played people who were... Uh, you know, cruel or obnoxious or one or or you know, just villainous in one way or another, and it's always such a great stretch to say, "Oh, now I get a chance to be as mean as I try never to be in real life." But I think that's one of the things that makes people want to become actors is like to try on different personalities and see what fits and what doesn't. So, when you did the show, did you sort of trust that your 
having reminded people of Jolson will be enough, or did you try to sort of imitate him? I did try to imitate him. Uh, I listened to a lot of recordings. I mean, we looked, you know, he made a lot of talkies besides, uh, besides the jazz singer. I mean, the jazz singer was such a gigantic success in its time, in, I think, 1927, that he, I mean, he had a contract with Warner Brothers to do five more pictures, even before the jazz singer was released. Uh, and all of the other movies since The Jazz Singer have been more or less forgettable. Uh, in fact, they basically use the same formula over and over and over. He's always an entertainer. He's always, he's always somebody who has a stage career and has some kind of conflict with someone that he's in love with who doesn't love him or there's a child. They would be very sentimental. He liked to play. He liked to be, he liked corny songs, frankly. Um, there's a story about um, he needed a song in, in actually in, in his second film. Now, I don't even remember the name of it, but he needed a song to sing to a little boy that he loved, you know, his, his young son. And of course, the kid dies, you know, because it's got to be a real tearjerker. But he needed a song, and he called up uh, uh, his favorite songwriter in New York and said, "Can you write? Can you send me? I, I need a song for you know to shoot in two days." Uh, and this is the, this is the setup. So the, 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 the composer and the lyricist got together in New York and they wrote the song called Sunny Boy. And their private joke between themselves was, if, you know, if he likes this, if Jolson goes for this song, it shows that there's nothing too corny for Al Jolson. If he look, if he, well, he not only liked it, but he turned it he put it into the song and it turned into a gigantic hit. It, it sold millions of copies. Um, it became Jolson's most commercial hit. Um, and the first song from a movie that had its own, you know, it was a crossover hit, that a song from a movie became a popular song on its own right. And then, you know, Sunny Boy. And it's a, it's a beautiful tune. It's a very simple, corny lyric. But you know, it was a tearjerker. And it worked because Jolson had, he was able to access that. His mother died when he was very young, when he was, uh, he was I think, not much older than you. And um, he was, so he was very sentimental about loss, the loss of love. And any song that emphasized that was something that he could really get his, his, his chops into. Um, and uh, so it worked, you know, I mean, now, you know, it wouldn't work stylistically anymore. But it, in his day, it was just absolutely gigantic. It's amazing to see how can we make that for a, for a modern audience, with a, you know, and you've got to somehow find what is the emotional need that Jolson had to express himself in this kind of way, you know, not just hiding behind a mask of blackface, but but dipping into you know really sentimental songs that um, are nostalgic and you know sometimes gooey even uh, to, a, you know, to modern tastes, but he had a great ear for tunes. That's the thing that made it so, so much fun to perform because I mean, every single one of them, just you know, they all had great earworms. Um, it's not surprising that so, you know, so many Jolson songs, and he recorded the same songs over and over and over. At a certain point in his career, um, every time he put out a new record, it was just like another cover of the same song that he had done 10 years or 20 years or 30 years earlier. Finally, by the time, you know, they made a movie about him, the Jolson story became a big hit. He wasn't in it, but somebody told, you know, it was his life musical bio. 
that was a big hit in 1947 or 48, I think. Um, by that time, they actually put in big band arrangements of all of his old songs from the 20s. And they became all as popular as they had been 25 years earlier. Uh, just because they were, I mean, he really worked with a lot of great composers. Not the most famous ones. Um, I think, although there might have been one or two songs that Irving Berlin wrote for him. But certainly, but Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hart, none of those guys ever. You know, he had a, a little stable of songwriters that he was very loyal to and worked with year after year after year, and they kept churning out these big hits that he had. So as an actor doing this show that you also wrote, how did you find your process to sort of be different since you also wrote it? Um, it was, well, first of all, because Jay, the director, was my co-writer on the script. So we had a, we had, we had a terrific collaboration. I mean, we, we, you know, because it was set up in discrete scenes, as we jumped from one period of Jolton's life to the next, um, we would assign ourselves, hey, you write this scene, I'll write that scene. And then we just you know, went, uh, in the early days of the internet, I think, we emailed each other scripts, uh, you know, in, or the individual scenes, and then each of us, you know, he would, he would edit my scenes and I would edit his. And we would finally get together on a, on a final version. We said, oh yeah, this is good. And we had a very easy collaboration. We had the same view of the character and of what we wanted to do in the script. Um, so once we actually went into rehearsal, then, you know, I stopped being a writer. I basically just said, okay, Jay's the director, you know, Jay, so I was with Jay. Jay's the director and I'm the actor and I take direction from him. And we worked with Bob and with Nancy uh, to, to build the scenes and I think every now and then, you know, at the end of a day's rehearsal, Jay might, you know, confer with me and say, you know, like, I think we could polish up this or that scene or line or uh, whatever seemed like it needed work. So but it was a very, very, very happy collaboration. And we had, it was a tremendous hit at the York. I mean, it went over so well that we were in a, a short bidding war with a number of different producers who wanted to take it either off Broadway or possibly to Broadway because it got some great reviews at the York and, and, um, and that's what happened. Once we, and when we transferred, we didn't change it. It remained basically the same, different set, of course, you know, different on a larger scale, but it was essentially the same show that we had done at the York. So lastly, I have to ask you, because I assume you had to deal with them, what were your interactions with Al Jolson's estate like? Uh, you need to ask the question again, Charles, because oh, you broke up. Sorry. Uh, because I assume you had to deal with them. What were your interactions with Al Jolson's estate like? Oh, um, you know, it was, it was really interesting. Uh, because he's a, he's, a, he's a character, you know, a, a person of national and international fame, uh, you didn't really have to get permission to write about him. It was... Um, but I think we, you know, and his la of his four wives, the last one, who was actually his, his only really happy marriage, which was a lucky thing for us because it was a great way to end the show with him finally finding someone that he could love and who loved him in return. Um, so her name was Earl, and she, uh, she left, she was his widow for many, many years. And she's no longer alive either. But she was alive at the beginning of the 21st century when we were doing the show 20 years ago, um, we, uh, she sent 
um, a stepdaughter to come and see the show in New York. And, um, you know, she, I mean, she gave us her, she gave us her blessing, but she said, you know, I would like, you know, someone from the family to come to see it. I guess she was at that point, she was too old to travel. She'd been in Wisconsin, in England for a very, very long time and very happy there. But she sent, I'm pretty sure it was her stepdaughter. Um, and it was a great experience. I mean, I, it, was, it was very flattering. It was very flattering to me uh, because this woman came back and, and she said, you know, she said, I never really knew, I, my father, speaking of Jolson, she said, he, I never got to see him perform live, but I was all, always at Hollywood parties where I would hear Jack Benny and George Burns talking about Jolson. Said because I'm, people never stopped talking about what a great performer he was. You know, I, I, if you read the reviews that he got in the twenties, you know, they, and they always talk about the electricity that he brought to the stage and this amazing charisma that he had as a performer. So this young woman says to me, she said, "I always wondered, you know, hearing this from from George Burns and from Jack Benny, um, what what he might have really been like." And seeing your performance, I think I understand. Oh. what it was that Jolson brought to the stage. So, you know, that was certainly uh, something to remember. Mm. I was very, very proud of that moment. About as much as anything, any feedback I ever got from the show, of course, was hearing that. Yeah. So what you were saying brings me right to my next questions, which are about working at the York Theater. You've mm. done two shows in their musicals in Mufti series. What do you think appeals to you about sort of returning to shows that weren't successful in their original runs? Oh, well, I think I've actually done six. Or it might have been, but it might be that one of those, two of those six with the same show that they did twice. Um, well, it's, you know, there's all of these gems in the, in the old musical theater, the whole, the, the York process. Of, uh, of doing these musicals in Mufti that, you know, shows would never get revived nowadays I mean, in full productions, but there's, you know, there, there's something in the musically or something in the book or something in the story or great roles or great moments that it's worth having a chance to see. And the fact that they could pull them off in, you know, shoestring, but always uh, very imaginative productions makes the York an incredible place to work. Uh, you know, I've, so many times that are there and 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 to actually and you know to, to give these shows a new life shows that have you know pretty much people have said oh nobody's ever going to revive this um for example and although i wasn't in this one but you know they they did the first ever revival of so long 130th street, 147th street yeah the show the the musical version of carl of carl reiner's enter laughing um and it's a fantastic show. It is hilariously funny, um, you know, with a wonderful score. Um, and Robert Morris played the role in the original production, and I can just imagine that he would have been, you know, sensational. Um, and to get a chance to see it at all, you know, we're, and, and try to imagine, well, what might Robert Morris have been like? But, you know, then you get to just see you know, George Irving doing his incredible, see the Butler song, which is such, became such a, 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 like a signature tune for George. Um, it, it was terrific. And I've seen so many other shows at the York, like, you know, not even to speak of the ones that I was in, 
But, for, you know, I got to do a couple of Noel Coward shows that, you know, nobody would revive anymore and begin to see, okay, you know, Noel Coward asks you to deliver, to deliver dialogue in a very different manner from, you know, George S. Kaufman and A. Burroughs from contemporary book writers. You know, it's all, it's, and to, you get to, it's a kind of archaeology, which is actually what I, the first profession that I ever wanted as a child was to be an archaeologist. I just dreamed of digging up, you know, great old ruins from ancient history. And in a way, reviving that kind of lost, buried musical is a kind of musical archaeology that I've always had a lot of fun doing. So tell us about what I believe was the last show you did there, which was Dear World with Time Daily. Tell us about working with her and how you got uh, that part. Uh, well, uh, it was uh, Michael Montel who directed it, had directed me in two or three of the other shows at the York. So, you know, he knew my work and we knew each other socially as well. And he's a wonderful guy. And so he just called and said, would you like to do this? And um, it was, you know, it was a lovely show. And, and Tyne was amazing. I mean, she was just so good. And she was, she was like this cl classic example of somebody who wears their stardom very lightly. Um, I might have earlier said the L Linda Ronstadt was the same way. I mean, it was just such a treat. When, to do Pirates when she was the most famous woman singer in the world, the most admired, the most, you know, had the biggest fan base and all of that stuff. And yet she, there was just like no ego with her at all, with Linda. And the same was true with, of Time. You know, she just, um, and she's doing this role that Angela Lansbury created uh, in a, you know, in a, in a difficult play, The Mad Woman of Chaillot, as, you know, adapted for a musical version um, with a lot of, you know, subplots and all, all kinds of stuff going on that, that uh, uh, you know, we, requires, it, it's, not, it's not something you can just throw up in a couple of days and say, oh yeah, we'll do it like, um, it was really easy. There was, there was a lot of character work and Time is a very dedicated actress and as, as well as a wonderful singer. Part of the thrill for me, in fact, was that I had seen her production of Gypsy um, her, you know, her revival of that, and she was, in which she got fantastic acting honors. Um, and it was wonderful to see how she brought the same level of, of uh, intensity and devotion to a very different role from Mama Rose. Uh, you know, quite the contrary. In, I mean, Mama Rose is such a bully and such a powerhouse, whereas the, the lady in, um, in uh, Dear World is kindness personified and a little daffy. Just the, just, you know, of all the, and, and so, but Tyne's range was enormous. And, you know, my role was very, very small. I think I had, in addition to a couple of musical numbers, I maybe had three spoken lines. Um, but by that time, you know, I was more or less semi-retired from show business. So it was like, you know, I don't have to have a big part here. I don't want to learn. The thing I had done previous to that, actually, I had done a, an off-Broadway off production of King Lear as Lear. I was like, okay, you know, now that I memorized that, I don't have to work so hard anymore. I think it'd be nice to take it easy. So uh, in a much smaller role, it was an opportunity to just be, share a stage with time. This, you know, we're a really great star. And, you know, watch her effortlessness, the, the, e the ease of performance that she brought. I mean, it was not to say that in rehearsal and, and, you know, on her own time, she was working really hard. But, um, the strain never showed. Uh, in performance, she was just relaxed, easy to work with, and, and very powerful on stage. And it was 
you know, one of those opportunities that over the years I've had as an actor to watch really brilliant people do wonderful things and repeat it, repeat it, you know, do it not just once, but several times. Say, yeah, yeah, I've, you know, not only do I have a sense of inspiration, which every great actor must have, but also the ability technically to repeat it. You know, I can do eight shows a week of this. It's not, you know, it's not just something I have to get right once. The next audience, as I said to you about a long run, the you know the next day's audience has never seen it. Yeah. You want to give them a show that's as fresh and new as it was the first time you did it. So, and watching how other people, how, how George Rose dealt with that and how Tyne Daly worked with that was, uh, you know, it was, this is a great object lesson in the art of acting. Is there a show that you would like to return to at the York or somewhere else? Hmm. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I talked about this once with, with, with Jim. Um, there was a mu in, in 19, I was sometimes still in the 60s. Um, there was a, uh, there came, opened on Broadway and closed very quickly because there was a newspaper strike. Um, a musical adaptation of the Jacobean play Volpone, famous old. Ben Johnson play from the 1600s uh, about an old miser who pretends to be dying to, in order to, to uh, get to convince some gullible people that he will make them their heir if they give him money now. Um, and it was called Foxy, and it was the last show that Burglar did on Broadway with the score, uh, music by Johnny Mercer or lyrics by Johnny Mercer. Um, and I saw it. And, uh, you know, so I actually saw Burt Lahr live on stage in the last thing that he did. And I remember it, you know, there were moments in his performance, um, and it's got to be 50 years ago or, you know, very close to that, that I remember as if, oh, yeah, and that's, that's how he disappeared up the proscenium or these very, you know, he was so amazing to, to watch on stage and he was so incredibly funny. And, you know, I always thought, you know, if anybody ever revived Foxy, I would love to do that part. I would love to do the burglar role. And, you know, the day may yet come. Who knows? I mean, someday we may be packing audiences into theaters again. That would have to happen first. We'd have to be able to just sit together. But, you know, when that, when that day comes, somebody says, hey, Steve, you want to play Foxy? I would say, oh, yeah, I'm there. So the last question I wanted to ask you is about King Lear, which you were talking about. You mm -hmm. sort of bookended your career with Shakespeare. You started with Joe Papp and huh. did King Lear. What did you, what had you learned in your second time at Shakespeare? Ha, my goodness. Um, wow. Well, it's, it's so hard to compare the tailor in Taming of the Shrew um, or the two soldiers with the two different uniforms in All's Well That Ends Well with a part like Lear. Um, well, it's, but you know, the, the, the things that I think I've, I've tried to emphasize in the course of talking with you all this time I remain, are true for doing Shakespeare, even as much as if you were doing Andrew Lloyd Webber. You've got to find the truth of the person whose words you are speaking. Yeah. And, you, you know, in a way you have to remember that, um, okay, I'm actually speaking the words of the playwright. But the playwright in his own mind, in this case, certainly, you know, Shakespeare, became all of these different characters. I mean, he had a Lear who has one life and a way of talking and a way of thinking and Edmund and Goneril and, Marie and Cordelia and all these amazing characters who have their own different ways of being. And you've got to enter into that through the author's mind 
you have to, you've got to locate the character through the mind of the author. And I think that's what every actor is doing in musical theater and straight theater in mime, even, even though, you know, if somebody writes a play that's all gesture, it's still, you have to locate what's the truth of that gesture. What is the, what am I trying to communicate to an audience, to people who are sitting down in a seat and say, um, take me into a new reality. In the case of Shakespeare, it's so interesting because you're speaking in, you know, not just conversational dialogue, but, but iambic pentameter. You're speaking in, in, in verse and find, and you know, how does, a, how does a living person such as Lear decide to speak in verse? What, you know, how does that, and it's, it's not unlike being in a musical and saying, you know, here I'm, I'm playing character, you know, say Nathan Detroit, and guys and dolls, and suddenly he bursts into song. Um, why is this person singing instead of talking when in real life nobody does that? And the same way with Shakespeare, well, nobody really talks in, in verse like to be or not to be, that is the question. Um, but you find, you're, you find, again, in the author's mind, it's real for the character. And you have to meet the author at that level before the character can start to come through. But so it's really, it's funny how similar regardless of the size of the role and, and, and the style of the language, uh, some of the basic principles remain the same. That's true. And I can tell you this over 40 years of acting. <laughs> so yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. You've had an amazing career and I'm honored that you shared it with us. It's very much my pleasure to talk with you. Listeners, thank you for joining us, and remember to tune back in on Friday when we are joined by our guest, Joshua Burgass. Josh is the Emmy-winning choreographer of NBC's Smash. His Broadway credits include On the Town, Gigi, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. His work has also been seen off-Broadway in Sweet Charity, Cagney, and The Pirates of Penzance and Farrington Stage. Thank you for tuning in.